Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Mike. Lauren. Did you celebrate the big event this week? Uh, Halloween? No, not that one. There's something else. Uh, oh, yes. Dia de los Muertos. <laughs> no. I mean, yes, that happened this week, too, but that's not what this podcast is about. Um, I give up. Did you celebrate the one-year musk anniversary on October 27th? It's been one year since Elon Musk acquired Twitter. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, no, that passed me by, but that's good to hear because that means we get to stop talking about it, right? No, it means we're, we're going to do one more episode at least on Twitter. We're finally going to pour one out. For Twitter, we've brought in a stellar lineup of guests, and we're going to talk about what comes next. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. We've got two guests for you today, which I guess means we're officially making Gadget Lab a roundtable. Welcome, Kate Nibbs, senior writer at Wired, who's joining us from Chicago and is a longtime friend of the pod. Thanks for having me back. And another special guest today, Peter Kafka, one of the media industry's most respected reporters, joining us from Recode in New York. Peter is also the host of the Recode Media Podcast. And he and I worked on a little podcast together this year called Land of the Giants, which we're going to talk about. Welcome, Peter, to the Gadget Lab. Thank you, past and current coworker. Nice <laughs> to see you again. I've been watching Lauren tape lines uh, remotely for the last several weeks. It's been quite entertaining. She's great. I've learned a lot of great tips from Peter, by the way, on podcasting, including don't look at the script. Just look <laughs> away. So I'm trying to look away as much as possible. So yes, we are talking about Twitter again today, one year under Elon Musk. And we're going to break this episode down into two parts. First, we're going to talk about the business of Twitter. How has Twitter actually fared under Elon Musk and current CEO Linda Yaccarino? And then we're going to talk about some of the key moments on Twitter throughout the years and whether any of the other text-based social media apps hold up. So first, Peter, what do we need to know about Twitter's actual business over the past year? How's it doing? It's not good. It's not good, Bob. Um, that was the easiest uh, projection to make when Elon was 
before Elon officially bought Twitter, somewhere between him announcing he was going to buy Twitter and then while he was spending a lot of time trying not to buy Twitter, he he put out a business plan to investors. And I'm, you can imagine air quotes around business plan because it just looked like something that someone had drawn in the middle of the night if they'd never used Twitter before or they'd heard about Twitter. It had crazy projections like it was going to increase the the user base from 200 million to a billion in X number of years, all this create and all this paid my, all this money, just none of it had any bearing on reality. And that to me was the sign that, you know, this guy who has lots of skills and has pulled off lots of things in the past, some of which are genuinely impressive, had literally no idea what he was doing when he was going to buy Twitter and he's proven it out. So, uh, <laughs> revenue down 50% because advertisers are, fled the platform. I mean, almost all of them are gone. Um, users, there's a lot of different numbers about uh, how many users have stuck around, but it appears that he has lost users. He's probably gained some some Elon stands as well. I think, I think Twitter officially says basically their user base is around the same, but you can't really trust what comes out of Twitter these days. Uh, lots of estimates have downloads, activity down 15, 20%. And that, you know, I think if you're people who listen to Gadget Lab, you might see some of that when you're on Twitter, sorry, X, sorry, Twitter. Um, there's just obviously a lot less engagement for at least people like us. Um, and we can talk about there's multiple Twitter user bases, and we should talk about that at some point. But it's about as bad as everyone thought it would be. Uh, the most recent data point internally from Twitter is they valued the company at $19 billion. Hmm. That's down from the $44 billion he paid for it. A year ago, that's probably actually too generous. Uh, Fidelity has it worth around fifteen, and I think if he actually tried to sell it today, it'd be worth even less than that. How's that for a capsule summary? <laughs> well, that's our show for today. Okay, good. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll find you on Threads. Um, probably the biggest shift that all of us noticed first is the shift to paid subscriptions for blue checkmark verification. Uh, it is no longer the option to get a blue check mark just for being a person in the world who can verify their identity. Now you have to pay for it. Uh, how is that going? Um, man, you have to go back. And it's so funny to remember all the hubbub around paid checks at the, the initial entrance. And now we're seeing what why they're a problem. Um, that doesn't seem to be going very well, is the short answer. Um, there are various numbers about how many blue checks are out there, the paid blue checks are out there. It's not very many. Um, I will say that this is something Elon has consistently talked about. You know, he does a lot of sort of on the fly thinking and reversals. He has, from the beginning, talked about sort of wanting Twitter to be a paid service in various forms and basically sort of making it a, a freemium service where there'd be a, a crappy free version and a good paid one. Um, and he's continuing to push toward that, I think, really ineptly. Um, it's also worth noting that there's a bunch of smart people who think paid social networks are actually a good idea, that they solve a lot of problems that social networks have today. But he's going about it in the worst way possible, which is saying, we're going to sort of take the worst users on Twitter and elevate their responses and replies um, and posts um, and thus drive out the people on Twitter who don't want to pay for a subscription, who are also happen to be a lot of the people that Elon really wants to impress. So again... About as about as badly as you could roll this thing out. Kate, you wrote a piece for Wired with the glorious headline, Unverify Me Daddy, with regards to Musk's uh, subscription scheme. And you basically said, you're not getting my $8. Unverify me. I don't care. 
I'm wondering if you have any regrets on not being verified and what the experience has been like for you on Twitter now that you don't have a blue check. So after I wrote that piece, I definitely had a moment where I wondered if I was about to look like a major fool a month or two later when I inevitably caved and bought a blue check mark because I was concerned about it like destroying the efficacy of Twitter for me as a reporter. I still find sources on Twitter, like to this day, pretty frequently. And I will say it is annoying now that sometimes I can't DM them. Like I have to Google around for their email address or a different way to contact them because um, some people have DMs turned off unless unless the DMer is verified. I did have some doubts for a moment, but honestly, I think that piece holds up really well because I think it's very apparent to everyone, as Peter was saying, what the issue with this scheme was. The checkmark has completely lost any value. Now it is a symbol that you've made a poor financial decision um, that you're gullible, uh, that you're untrustworthy. It's, uh, yeah. And so it's thirsty. Like, <laughs> so thirsty. <laughs> it just, it's, it went from like, I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. It was never actually like cool to be verified. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out. In the same way that like, you know, reporters are the coolest group of people. It was never, It was never actually as cool as maybe we wanted it to be to be verified, but it was helpful for, uh, for news organizations. It was helpful. It was, it was something that did make using Twitter more effective overall. Even for people who weren't verified, who use it as a news source, the, the verified badges used to indicate that an account was at least somewhat trustworthy. Now it means the opposite. I'm glad I'm not verified. I'm never getting verified. Although I am honestly overall still a little bit in mourning about the the muskification of Twitter. And again, this doesn't make me cool, but I'm being honest. I It was my favorite social network for a long time. I'm still on it because I feel like I can't give it up. Um, I, I think I'm still clinging to hope that it's going to be fixed. But will I ever pay for verification? No, I can confidently say I will not. Are you guys verified? Am I? Am I no. Am I accidentally being a huge no. bitch to you? No. Kate, I, 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 I'm so on board with you that I won't even beg. I asked Facebook slash Meta to verify me on Threads when it first rolled out, and it they they wouldn't. Um, and just as a matter of peak, I refuse to ask them to to redo it again. So I'm gonna. Peter, you don't even have there. a profile photo on Threads. It really disturbs me. I love the fact that it freaks people like you and a couple <laughs> other antisocial just weirdos out. Add a photo. What There's plenty doing? of photos of me available on the internet. You can, if you want to know what I look like. My 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 Twitter handle is an is a cartoon monkey. So I don't think we need my photo. But by the way, I just I gotta enforce this. You could see Musk's miscalculation with this. He assumed that the journalists who use Twitter would, one, obviously stay there, and then obviously they'd want to pay for their blue checks because he thought they meant a lot to us. Just fundamental miscalculation after miscalculation about how other people use Twitter. Elon Musk views Twitter as he is Twitter's biggest power user. He assumes everyone else has the same views about Twitter that he does, and he's Hmm. markedly off. And I think, you know, a lot of journalists assume that everybody has the same views about Twitter as they do uh, and, you know, politicians. But it's obvious that that's not true. Um, even if the user numbers are going up or going down, there are a lot of people who are on Twitter and continue to use it as though absolutely nothing has changed. 
right? These vast communities of people that are tight-knit anyway, that all they do is really talk to each other and share memes. And or crypto tips. Or crypto tips. <laughs> <laughs> There's I think everybody, everybody listening and everybody here knows at least like one community that they're a part of on Twitter where it's just like business as usual for the last year. Yeah. So who's still there? Like Peter, you referenced some of these communities earlier. Who who's um, there? So Here's two groups I think about a lot. One, I'm friends with some people who are in the video game business, and they tell me that's where they communicate with their customers and fans, et cetera, and they don't notice any drop-off there. And then, Lauren, the episode of Land of the Giants, the Twitter fantasy that you and I are putting out this week, talks a lot to lots of different communities of users. But one, one community that we talk to a lot in particular is Black Twitter. Um, sort of Twitter's best known homegrown community, I think. And repeatedly throughout the, the, the interviews we did for that series, we'd ask black users of Twitter, are you leaving under Elon? What's different under Elon? And they might have complaints, but generally the vibe was we're not going anywhere. Um, and in some cases they were explicit about it. They said, we're, you know, Elon Musk may want us to leave, but this is our space that we've built for ourselves. Um, so we have no intention of leaving, which was an interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's actually what the episode is about. It's about how the users created Twitter. Twitter in the early days in particular was so clunky and so just sort of foreign to like the average social media user that it was a lot of users who got on and started using things like the hashtag or the at symbol or finding different communities and subgroups to build it up into into what it was. And before we go to break, I just want to ask both both of you, Peter and Kate, a quick question, which is like, why should anyone care about Twitter right now? Why should we? How culturally significant is it? I think it's still incredibly culturally significant because there's nothing that's risen up to replace it. The closest thing is TikTok, but it's fundamentally a different medium. Um, it's how many people get their news. It's how news is disseminated. And sometimes it's how news is made when, you know, celebrities or political figures come on there to make public statements. Even though it was never as big as Facebook, I think it's significant as it was never a public square, but as a amplification machine uh, can't really be overstated. Yeah, I think I think because lots of people in power in particular are still reflexively using people in politics. Um, we saw this after the the October 7th attacks in Israel. Um, the IDF, the Supreme Leader of Iran, people from Hamas were all tweeting. That said, I, I mean, I do think we've we've all overstated Twitter's use because we all love Twitter so much. Um, I think that tell from what again I've been told is that Telegram is much more important than Twitter and both the Russia Ukraine coverage and, and information and again in Israel and Gaza that's where most information is coming from, um, which by the way is a, is a, is not a bad thing if if we live in a world where Twitter is replaced by multiple other social networks. I think. Mm. On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the culture of Twitter. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 
Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Kate Nibbs, you mentioned in the first half of the show that you're still mourning Twitter a little bit. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to pour one out for Twitter, for each of us to rehash some of our favorite moments on Twitter, or maybe just share a story that you think is really emblematic of what Twitter was in its heyday. So Kate, I'll start with you. What's that moment for you? Um, I feel like it's hard to pick just one because my favorite moments that are related to Twitter was when there was a public event happening in the real world. And I was sort of using Twitter as a way to get real-time reactions from so many different people. Like the most recent example I can think of where I had fun with it was the Oscars where Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, which I don't condone violence, but I had a blast that night watching everyone, everyone's reactions. I, I just, it, there, it, there's a communal vibe that I loved. And I agree that it's not the worst thing in the world if Twitter is replaced by a variety of different platforms. It's probably the healthiest thing. But I will, I will miss sort of feeling like I have a sense of what the world's response is to something as it's happening. Um, and I, I don't know, part of me does hope that, that something emerges to give me that sensation again in the future. And that it's not TikTok because I love TikTok, but like I can't really bring myself to turn my camera on and, and like freestyle a video response. I think I'm just too old or something. <laughs> give me a text-based platform for the love of God. <laughs> Yeah, that's another thing we haven't really talked about is how our our bias as journalists is probably slightly towards text-based social media. Peter, slightly. Yes, slightly, yeah. Ever so slightly. Peter, what's yours? Uh, like Kate, the, the slap was great because, again, it wasn't just people's reaction to the slap. It was that's where you would go on and you'd see like someone had a uh, a stream from like Australian ABC that had much better... Uh, coverage of the actual slap than you were getting from the 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 feed on American TV, and that was the kind of thing you just got used to on Twitter. Like, oh, something happened. I want to learn more about. It. I also want to participate in the dunks and whatever else and the commentary. But also, where can I get more information immediately? And Twitter came through really well. And the the flip side of that, or the the other side of that coin, I guess, is early Twitter for me. And I was on very early when I saw almost thought of Twitter as a New York based company because there were so many investors and tech people from New York that were connected to it. It's where all these people that I was writing about 
um, would go on and talk all night long and talk about what they were investing in, talk about companies they were visiting. And I was like, this is amazing. This is an amazing reporting tool. Almost all of them quickly wised up and realized they should not be engaging in Twitter that way unless they were promoting it themselves. And all of those guys, and they were almost all guys, totally bailed on Twitter some number of years later. But it was a really useful reporting tool for a specific period of time. Then it became a bad reporting tool. Then it became a way to just write about what everyone else was tweeting about, which wasn't very helpful. Mike, how about you? Snack fight, which is your Twitter <laughs> handle and is how you are forever known now. It's my handle everywhere. Um, I think back to South by Southwest 2007. So I was working here. I think I'd just been promoted to editor. So I wasn't, I wasn't there. I didn't go. But here was this tool that all of a sudden had appeared basically overnight that allowed me to feel like I was there. And it gave me this sense of presence. And Granted, like the chatter happening on Twitter in 2007, if you remember, was like, where are all the good tacos? Has anybody seen Dave? Does anybody know which taco place Dave went to? You know, that was like, that was the extent of the discourse. Was that like Dave Morin or something or just Dave? Uh, no, I think it was probably Dave Weiner. Oh, okay. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just that kind of thing where it was like this, this is where everybody's hanging out. And it's like this big open text thread it was very strange right and it was pre-mobile phones um you know i think maybe the first year with with mobile phones was the following year 2008 yeah and but people I, you could use twitter just with sms with sms yes. right right not what i meant was smartphones yeah. sorry yes <laughs> it was uh, so everybody was walking around austin smsing each other and i was sitting here in the office watching the stream go by and i was like this is amazing i just felt so plugged in even though i was you know 2000 miles away um, I would say my other big memories and probably the thing I'm going to miss because I don't really do it the same way anymore is live tweeting concerts. <laughs> so like there's a live streamed concert or you're at a concert and you're you're live tweeting it and you're watching sort of the the uh, the peanut gallery flow by while the band is on stage. That's pretty awesome. That's largely the move to tw uh, to Reddit. This is so so all the fish heads are on Reddit now is what you're telling me. There's actually a lot of the fish heads are still on Twitter, but there is also okay. a very vibrant. <laughs> Wait, Mike, people are at concerts on Reddit? Like, yeah. Posting. <laughs> yeah. I, I was having a hard time getting my head around it too until no. until until Mike mentioned fish. I'm like, oh, that's a very specific collector mindset, right? It is. They haven't played this song since this thing. I got it. Yes. I wish our podcast audience could see Kate's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's it's way less bad than the person in front of you holding up their camera to live stream or photograph it, right? If yes. Mike Fair and his enough. friends want to tap away quietly <laughs> while while Trey's a, noodling out, great. It's very sweet. It's very sweet. It's adorable. It I love it. Love that for you. <laughs> how many fish concerts have you been to? Uh, I don't know. I lost count after a hundred. And how many of those have you said you've spent on Twitter? Uh, well, I mean. There is the whole thing where you sit on your couch and you watch the shows yeah, because they live stream live all their streams. I've watched over a hundred of those and almost all of them were on Twitter, but the last 10 or so have been on Reddit. Amazing. Yep. It is amazing. We've come full circle. Technology. And Reddit used to be right here in our office <laughs> <laughs> for various reasons, corporate reasons. Uh, you know, I have a really fond memory of like the first time that something I tweeted went somewhat viral. And I don't even know if it was viral by today's standards. And Peter, 
This might have made it into the Land of the Giants episode. I'm not 100% certain. May have hit the cutting room floor. But in 2011, I was like bored one weekend. I remember it was Labor Day weekend. I wasn't really doing anything. I tweeted out a cartoon from The New Yorker, this really cute cartoon about some kid going back to school and saying, well, you'd know what I did this summer if you followed me on Twitter. And walked away from my computer, came back, noticed I had a ton of, I don't even know if they were called like app mentions or notifications or like what they were called at the time, but all of a sudden a ton of activity. And I looked and the Fonz had retweeted me. <laughs> Henry Winkler. Henry like, Winkler. Like what? Why? I don't know. I don't know how he found it. I don't know if he was, maybe he was following me. Maybe we were friends. I don't know. But he, I, and I was like, the Fonz retweeted me. It just felt. It was a it was a high. It was like, oh, this is how Twitter becomes addictive, <laughs> right? Because all of a sudden you're connecting with these people. You're a normie and you're connecting with someone else who, even if you have a blue check mark, you're a normie and you're connecting with someone else who has a blue check mark, but they are uh, like legitimately very established in their field and they have a huge follower base and an audience and and you're like it's this moment of connection and then all of a sudden all these other people start responding to you and it's, you know, you feel like really plugged in in that moment. Mm -hmm. I remember that feeling and getting sort of hooked on it. And then the other thing I really have appreciated. That's a Gadget Lab exclusive, Lauren. That is not. Oh, it is. Script. Oh, okay. So, so it did make. If the you're listening to this floor. now, that's that's you've got special information you can only get from Gadget Lab. <laughs> My hugely insightful story didn't make it on Land of the Giants, but it made it here to the B side. Uh, another thing that I think our producer Boone will greatly appreciate because he has written about this for Wired, some great stories for Wired about this emergency Twitter. Mm hmm. So Boone wrote a story about a guy on, was it New Zealand or Australia, Boone? The other side of the world. New Zealand. New Zealand, who was like a Twitter fire watcher. And he would pull in all these signals from around the internet and then tweet out where wildfires were happening. And that information would often cross our feeds like well in advance of when people needed to know about it. And then like earthquake Twitter. Mm -hmm. we just Did had you feel an, it? We just had an earthquake the other night here in San Francisco. I was out to dinner, felt the whole restaurant shake. And my friends and I immediately pulled out our phones and we were like, and then we looked at each other and we were like, <laughs> what do we oh, do? What do we do? What do we do? And I went on threads and it just wasn't the same. Was not the same. You need that, you need that fast reverse chronological feed. You need that real time reverse cron. Yeah. But Adam Mosseri, <laughs> now we should segue to the next part of the show. Adam Mosseri, who is running threads for Instagram, he runs Instagram. This is part of Meta, has said that he wants to deprioritize news on threads. It is not the platform for that, which is what some of us in the room here came to love Twitter for. Kate, Peter, what do you make of this? And are there any other social networks out there now that are filling that hole for you? I have basically given up on threads because I think it's boring. I think in part because it doesn't prioritize news. I had hopes for Blue Sky, but I gave up on it too. It's like I, I got I got to pick one. Sometimes I copy and paste my tweets onto them and then I feel like a jerk doing it. I'm like, everyone's going to know that I'm copy and pasting, but I don't want to have to come up with three distinct text-based microblogging personalities. Um, so no, nothing's really filling the hole. I will say um, when there was the mass shooting in Maine recently, that was the first time like a big news event happened and I found out via TikTok and not Twitter. And I was like... Oh damn, we're in we're we're in a brave new world. I'm finding I'm finding out about breaking news via TikTok at this point. Um, Did you feel like you again, could trust that information? 
I mean, not really. I it was it was you know how sometimes you're scrolling on TikTok and like a live blog will come up. It was someone like live talking from a nearby town in Maine. No, but and then I think I I went to Google to be and and put in like Maine mass shooting. And no, it wasn't as good, but that's how I found out. And that I think that's the first time I can remember finding out about breaking news uh, on a different platform. Hmm. I, I had learned about a celebrity death on threads recently. I can't remember who it was. Was it Matthew but th- Perry? Nope. But it was it was prior to that. And I, I saw in the Lewiston, Maine shootings I, I saw on Twitter. Um, I don't think it will ever replace that density of people who are tweeting about live stuff. So it's, I don't, we'll never replicate that version of Twitter. I think threads will be the closest to it simply because that seems to be where the most journalists are going to go by default. I do think that when Mosseri says he's trying to deprioritize news, he is vague about what that means. And it can mean a couple different things. One is... We're not going to do the deals we used to do at Facebook slash Meta to work with news publishers. We're not very interested in that. So let's not tell you that we're going to and then pull the rug out. That makes sense. Um, It seems like he also wants to avoid controversy, which I think is not going to work. Because if your threads looks like my threads, um, the, the stuff in the for you tab they're giving me is just a, a range of people yelling at each other about Israel and Gaza. Um, so I don't think, so whether or not that's news or not, that is still stuff that enrages and upsets people. And if so, if you're, if the premise was, if we get rid of news then threads will be this cool, chill place, that's not going to work. Um, but you know, the episode, I keep talking about the episode we did Lauren, but the, the thing that the episode that we built is a lot about how Twitter's features were created basically on the fly without a lot of thought about what's good, what's bad, what are after effects. And so I think the most interesting thing about Threads is what lessons has Mosseri taken from Twitter and other platforms about how you, he he could easily just rebuild Twitter that looks exactly like Twitter. He clearly wants to make something that is something like Twitter, but also different. So I'm really fascinated to see what he leaves in and what what he takes out. Hmm. Yeah, and it is a long game, right? Like it's going to take several years before we see how any of these alternative platforms, let's call them, uh, evolve. Uh, There are a lot of them that are open. uh, And as soon as they start gaining traction, they might shut. Uh, There are some that are built to be open. Uh, Like, So I'm a big Mastodon fan. I've been a Mastodon fan for a while, but it has big user experience problems, right? Onboarding is extremely difficult. Finding people to follow is extremely difficult. And I know I'm going to get a lot of hate toots about this, but it is- <laughs> They're called toots. They are called That's toots. That's part of the problem. That is also part of the problem. <laughs> but it is like an objective fact that it is difficult to use. And I don't think you can argue that. And they have designers who are working on it. So I do expect that at some point, you know, in the next year or so, it's going to be a lot easier to use Mastodon. But the whole idea of like, you know, the Fediverse and uh, open data protocols between networks. We're kind of back where we were about 15 years ago with like all of the social networks saying that they're going to be open and they're going to play nice with each other. But I do think that that's just sort of an armistice agreement that we have right now until one of them takes off. Mastodon is so difficult to use that every time I go to use it in a web browser, I literally don't know what URL to type in. And then I started paying, I think, $1.99 per month to use Ivory on mobile, mm-hmm. which is a third party. It's a client that takes you to Mastodon immediately because I, I can't figure out how to get to it otherwise. Yeah. 
And, you know, this was a, this was a big deal in early Twitter, right? Twitter was this big coral reef. Like it had, you know, RSS feeds. It had open APIs. You could build things against it and you could build a lot of really great client software. There's a lot of people who opened up Twitter on their, on their web browser and they were like, I don't know what this is. And then you download a client and it helps you make sense of it, right? And like now there aren't really a lot of clients anymore. No, not for Twitter. But for Mastodon, there are. Mm-hmm. And I think that will that may be the thing that makes it. No, it's. I really don't think it's ever going to be mainstream. <laughs> but what we're talking about is a very fragmented experience, too. So the things that we all loved about Twitter as news people, but also I think people in general finding their communities, is that you knew people would all be in the same place, whether they were birders or whether they were fish heads or whether they were sports fans or whether they were annoying journalists, like we all would be there. Mm-hmm. And when you've got six different instances of social apps on your phone, it's really hard to find the thing you're looking for. At the same time, I mean, this is still an area of technology for consumers where it's not, you're like, your life isn't owned by just one company, right? It's not like all Amazon Web Services and Google. Maybe one of these smaller players will rise from the ashes and take on meta maybe it'll be twitter question mark <laughs> for all we I don't know, know it's gonna be twitter <laughs> sorry X. i hope it is because <laughs> i don't i don't want to start over from scratch i gave up on mastodon i mean are you guys going on mastodon to talk about like n- your niche interests and like connect with specific communities yes or are you okay because i i feel like i get that but as a general you know source of information i i gave up um, I've I've never figured out how to use Mastodon, and I'm I'm a professional person who should try to use social <laughs> platforms. And I'm like, well, if it's but my my premise is if it's this difficult to get on, obviously it's going nowhere. Mm-hmm. And if people like Mike like it, great. And you know, so now now we're just talking about bulletin boards, right? Like wherever your nerd bulletin board is that you care about, you'll go find a place to hang out there. And it doesn't really matter what platform it's on. It's the people you want to connect with. That's so you'll right. go there for that thing. The as, as Lauren said, the thing that Twitter was great about is it had everyone there, people you didn't know, didn't want to bump into, but would find anyway. I mean, the thing I miss most now right now is not news, it's sports. It's I'm watching a nationally televised game or even a not nationally televised game, but one I'm really into and something crazy happened and I want to see how other people are reacting and maybe I want to throw up my own reaction and that is gone. Um, it's not the end of the world. I could just sit alone by myself in my basement watching TV, but I liked it better when I could share or gloat or dunk on other people who were watching the same game. Peter, I don't want to end on that note of sad Peter <laughs> sitting alone in his basement watching sports. I got other things going on. It's okay. Man. But <laughs> including including our episode of Land of the Giants, episode two of the Twitter fantasy, which is coming out this week as well. Last shameless plug of this episode. All right. Well, you heard it here. It sounds like the future of Twitter is BBS. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done 
by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. Kate Nibbs. I'm going to go to you first. What is your recommendation this week? I'm recommending a book to you. Um, It's called Do You Remember Being Born? It's by a Canadian author named Shawn Michaels. And I got sent it because I've been covering like AI and publishing a lot recently. So I think I got put on some list where I get sent any book that's remotely involved with like AI as a plot point. This one, Michaels actually used it's it's about a poet who gets uh convinced by like a a big tech comp a fictional big tech company to come on and write a poem with an AI. Um and I was completely blown away by how much I loved this book. I was extremely skeptical that authors are gonna find ways to incorporate AI into their writing that isn't insanely cringy or hokey. And Michael's managed to craft a beautiful book that I cannot recommend highly enough. I think now that he's done it, no one else should bother. Like, I'm not necessarily pro uh, making this gimmick a a thing, but somehow he managed to make an absolutely marvelous novel that incorporates AI-generated text. Um, And that is my recommendation. Fascinating. What does the title refer to? Um, it's like part of the poem that this, um, poet protagonist writes with their AI doppelganger. And when did that come out? It came out in September. Um, I think in the U S and Canada, it's, there's definitely, it's available in the U S as well as Canada. And honestly, like, I love it so much. I might write about it at some point. I've just, I've, I can't believe how good it is (laughs) considering how much, uh, side eye I generally give uh, works that incorporate AI generated text. Well, if you're going to write about it, you have to do it soon because the show is going to come out and then other people are going to read it. And scoop <laughs> it. <laughs> That's okay. Okay. And the book is called, Do You Remember Being Born? Thank you. That sounds like a great one. I have to pack that in my beach bag. <laughs> Peter, what's your recommendation? I was going to recommend a TV show, but I just feel so bad that Kate recommended a book and, and I don't really read. But I did read a novel a couple of years ago that's great. It's called Leave the World Behind. It's about two uh, Brooklyn yuppies who rent a house somewhere in Montauk or the North Shore, somewhere in Long Island, and then things go awry. And it's great and creepy. It's by uh, a guy named Ruman Alan. And the reason you should go out and read it right now is because it's going to be a Netflix movie with Julia Roberts uh, in the next month or so. I'm really interested to see that. Um, so you should go read it before it gets spoiled by by the Netflix version, which might be great, by the way. Leave the world behind. You said it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. But, you you know, we, we're not all highbrow here. You can tell us about your TV show. Tell okay. us. Now I'm curious. Okay. Um, it's not a new show. It's been on since 2019. It is called What We Do in the Shadows. Oh. Uh, it's on FX. It is a mockumentary about... Uh, not particularly good at their job vampires who live in Staten Island. And it is so smart 
and so funny and so base, but also really elevated. If this was on HBO, all the chattering class people would be loving it. For some reason, it is just not getting any. It's getting enough love that FX is it's now in its fifth season. It'll do a sixth. But it's great, and you can definitely binge it. And uh, me and my 15-year-old nerd son watch it most nights and crack up. And this this also features the Flight of the Concords, uh singer, right? Am I it's confusing. Correctly? So there was okay. a movie called the same title of what okay. we do in the shadows that I think he was in and he's he and Taika Waititi are both listed as producers of this but I don't think they're involved in it. Ah, okay. Oh, all right. So this is I get it. This is a ah, series, Kate, not the film. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> Kate just slacked me the secret code because that is what me and my son say to each other all the time. <laughs> Can we it's share that? It's a really that? funny show. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> funny show. Jackie, there's an episode where one of the vampires goes on the lam and ends up in Pennsylvania and renames himself Jackie Daytona and I can't <laughs> Do it justice. You got to watch it. It's great. Okay, great. Adding that to the list. <laughs> Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, I'm going to recommend an old movie. It's getting to be cozy season. It's about to be dark, stupid early. So it's time to queue up some good movies. If you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in 30 something years, I would recommend Pump Up the Volume. <laughs> this is the, the 1990 feature starring Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis. And it is a flashback to a time when terrestrial radio mattered. Everybody had landlines. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, a peek into the past. However, the themes of the, the film, which are uh, adults just do not understand their teenagers and school is bad and boring and freedom of speech is very important. And the old suits at the FCC just don't know what's good for America. Those things like still stand. So it's also important. smoking is cool. Everybody in the movie smokes. We ju- we just rewatched it too. It, it, it's it's a hilarious time capsule. It just it, it, I feel like it was on streaming and then it disappeared for a bunch of years and now it's back. Yeah, because I think like you and one other person all recently re- rewatched it. Uh, so the, like when I was watching, I was like, oh yeah, this is in my consciousness because people have been talking about it again. But everybody smokes. I feel like there was like product placement money by the tobacco companies to get all of the teenagers <laughs> in this movie smoking. It's quite possible. Very strange. Anyway, awesome movie. Uh, it's also very <laughs> bad, but by which I mean it's awesome. Uh, and a fantastic soundtrack, like a life-changing soundtrack. It came out when I was 15, and I remember buying the soundtrack, and like all of that music is important to me now, so it must <laughs> must have had a big effect on me. Pump up the volume. Pump up the volume. When Mike first came into the office this morning and said he was going to recommend Pump Up the Volume, I literally asked him if it was one of those 1990 CD services where you like like – Columbia House. Or, uh, Pump of the Volume just sounds like one of those. I'm editions. surprised you didn't see it, Lauren, because it was the introduction of uh, Christian Slater as Heartthrob, and he's doing yeah. a hilariously bad uh, Jack Nicholson impression the whole way. Um, but oh. people, people of your age, I believe, fell in love with Christian Slater around that. I definitely had a Christian Slater phase, but I think it was. I haven't seen Pump of the Volume, so I'll add that one to my watch list. You got to see it. Okay. You got to see it. Where and where did you stream this? On the internet. Okay. What's your recommendation? My recommendation is, I fibbed earlier when I said that it was my last time shamelessly promoting the podcast I did with Peter. (laughs) My recommendation this week is Vox Media's Land of the Giants, 
This season in particular is called The Twitter Fantasy. It is hosted by the one and only Peter Kafka, who joined us today for the show. But I joined him for the second episode of the series, which comes out this week. And it's all about the culture of early Twitter and how the users made Twitter what it was. The good, the bad, the spammy, and how things got a little dark during this time, too. I don't know. Did I do a good job describing that, Peter? You got it all. What's your favorite part of the episode? Um, well, this is a very inside joke. Has anyone here heard of, of, of a cheetah girl? <laughs> anyone? No. Okay. I feel like a Disney Channel. Yeah. Thank you, Kate. We've had a long-running debate about whether we could refer to the cheetah girls without any other explanation. In this. There have been so many notes exchanged about, do we leave this in? Do we take this to cheetah girl? Former Disney star? Cheetah girl? Did... Yes. What I don't even know what we landed on. I'm just gonna whenever whatever the producers decide. Yes. I don't. Yeah. I literally don't know how it. We're, we're gonna find out tomorrow. This is really embarrassing to admit that I know, but didn't Rob Kardashian have a long term relationship with a? Cheater? I just learned this yesterday <laughs> because Peter slacked me something, and I was like, okay, good to know. More context. Yep, Rob Kardashian it's- dated one. Kind of disturbing to me that that just sits in my brain. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, Adrian, the cheetah girl. (laughs) Peter, it seems that you have you chosen the wrong co-host for this episode. Clearly, you should have gone with Kate. I just like that we did uh, recommendations and and, and we overlapped on with three of us in terms of stuff That's we've been consuming good. recently. Yeah. It was great. So. Yeah. My, the mind, the mind movie, man. Mike. <laughs> happening despite the lack of Twitter. The mind meld is still happening. Peter, Kate, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Gadget Lab. It's great to have you in the lab. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Mike, thanks as always for being a great co-host. Thanks as always for being a great co-host. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. (laughs) Toot, toot. Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads, just check the show notes. Boone will link to us. By the way, our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth. Goodbye for now, and we'll be back next week. Hackers and cybercriminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition. Click Here. And liftoff. Click Here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From PR.